Hey, welcome to the Plant Yourself Podcast. I'm your host, Howard Jacobson. Before we get to today's show, a quick reminder that this podcast is free for everyone and supported by those who can afford it. So uh, if you have found this podcast a useful companion during 2020, and you'd like to see it continue through 2021, I would invite you to go to plantyourself.com slash gift. If you are in a position where you have the means to support something that means something to you and hopefully uh, you think is doing good in the world. You can use PayPal or Patreon. You can make a one-time contribution or become an ongoing sustaining patron of the show. And if funds are too tight for you to show your appreciation in a monetary sense, you can still leave a review of the Plant Yourself podcast on whatever platform you listen to podcasts. That also helps us a great deal. All right, on to today's episode. This is the Plant Yourself podcast. I'm Howard Jacobson of plantyourself.com. Longtime listeners to this podcast know that my guests and I often point to big food and big pharma as two industries that put their own profits above the public health. Well, today we're going to add a third industry to that, Big Sneaker. My guest, Stephen Sashin, is the co-founder of ZeroShoes.com, and he is a fierce critic of the athletic footwear industry. Stephen and I met... Uh, eight, nine years ago when we were in the digital marketing world, and we stayed in touch as we both migrated into health and wellness. And full disclosure, Stephen has been my almost barefoot shoe supplier since 2011 when I read Christopher McDougall's book Born to Run and got my mind blown about the harm done by hyper-cushioned and hyper-supportive footwear. Nike, Adidas, Reebok, I'm looking at you guys. So it turns out, according to Stephen's research, that these hyper-cushioned shoes with all that padding on the bottom and all that extra support is actually the cause of most of the running-related injuries that seem to be epidemic in America, rather than being the cure for them. But I'll let Stephen go into this in his own words and talk about how he started the company, about how it's growing, about the research and the biomechanics of, of running in and not in uh, athletic shoes, and also about his experience on Shark Tank. So without further ado, Stephen Sashin, welcome to the Plant Yourself podcast. Thank you. Thank you. So you have a really fun, interesting, and very unusual business. Why don't you start by telling us what it is? Unusual. Um, well, I wouldn't think of it that way. Um, we're make, well, let's say it this way. We're making footwear inspired by designs that are about 10,000 years old. So um, uh, what we're doing, I like to say what we're doing isn't rocket science, or as they said when they invented this product, it ain't rock science. Um, more specifically, what we make are lightweight performance recreation footwear, mostly sandals right now, but we have some new things coming out in the fall. And our, the key to what we're doing is natural. So natural fit, the footwear that's actually designed the way your feet are shaped, not trying to squeeze your feet into some shape that they don't belong. Um, natural flex, which means they allow your feet to bend, move, and, and um, function naturally. And natural feel, so you, you know, there's more nerve endings on the bottom of your feet than anywhere but your fingertips and your lips, and that's not an accident. So our footwear gives you as much ground feel as possible, given whatever you want to do. So some people like to really feel barefoot, and we have products for that. Some people need more protection because they're on some aggressive trails, and we have products for that that still don't sacrifice our natural fit and natural flex. Gotcha. So 
first of all, um, how did you get into this? Into this? <laughs> oh my gosh! Um, totally accidentally and, and practically as a joke. So eight years ago, when I was forty-five, I got back into sprinting after a thirty-year break, and I was getting injured constantly. I mean, like every two weeks, I was pulling something, tearing something, ripping something, straining something, and after a couple of years of this. One of my friends, who's a world champion cross-country runner, said, you should try uh, taking off your shoes and running barefoot just to see what that does. And I figured, all right, what the hell? And that weekend, there was a little gathering for people who wanted to do barefoot running in Boulder, Colorado. And so I went over there, took off my shoes. Now, let me back up. I'm a sprinter. I'm a master's sprinter. So um, I run the 100 meters. I don't even take turns. I don't like the 200 meters. Uh, my training partners joke that I have a phobia of the other side of the track. And I go, that's ridiculous because how can you be afraid of something that, from my experience, doesn't exist? So I don't do distance. Okay, so I take off my shoes, I go for a run with this group, and we're running on cement and on grass and on gravel and on trails and pretty much every surface you can think of. And after we were done, I turned to someone who had a GPS watch and said, how far did we just go? Because I was so fascinated, so enthralled by the experience of what it felt like underneath my feet and what it felt like as I changed my gait and played with my stride. And uh, it was just amazing to me. And, and she says, that was a, a little over uh, 5K, a little over three and a half miles. And I went, I'm sorry, what? So I was just so transfixed that I ran further than I ever have by light years, frankly. And I wanted to, from that point on, I wanted to be as close to barefoot as I could, as often as I could. But there was actually one other, there's two other little pieces of this. One is that at the end of that run, I ended up with a giant blister under the ball of my left foot. Now, a lot of people go, oh, this doesn't work. I got a blister on my, my left foot. My aunt thought was, huh, how come my right foot is fine? <laughs> my left foot isn't. So clearly half my body was doing something right. And I figured if I could, and oh, and my left leg was the one that was getting injured more often. So I figured that if I could stop doing whatever caused that blister, I'd probably stop doing whatever was causing my injuries. And I went out a week later for my second barefoot run with this gaping hole in the ball of my foot thinking, I'll give myself 10 minutes, and if I can't figure out a way to not run painlessly, uh, I'll just call it a day and try again later. So at the 9 minute and 30 second mark, when it had just been nothing but excruciating pain, something changed, and literally within one stride, I went from pain, pain, pain to the lightest, fastest, easiest running I've ever done in my life. And I didn't really figure out till later what happened, and we'll talk about that in a second, but that was that's what cinched it for me. And so uh, to get that barefoot feeling as often as I could, I just started making these minimalist sandals out of just a thin sheet of rubber, uh, some lace that I got from Home Depot. I made a pair for myself and my wife and a couple other local barefoot runners, uh, and then more people wanted them, then more people wanted them. And finally, this coach said, if you uh, turned your little hobby into a business, if you put up a website, I would put you in this book that I'm contracted to write about barefoot running. So I rush home. I pitch the story to my wife, Lena, who tells me it's a really horrible idea. We won't make any money, and it's just a distraction from other things that we're doing. And I'm a good husband, and I said, yeah, you're probably right. And she goes to bed around 9 p.m., and by 10 p.m., I had a website built. <laughs> and then it, it just... Uh, uh, launched it a week and a half later, and it just took off. Uh, we that we've been we've been catching, trying to play catch up with it ever since, and that's how we got here. Wow. So there's there's a lot to unpack in there, but the the there is the, the first thing that I'm getting is this idea that 
in our modern world, in, in not just in our footwear, but in lots of ways, we are uh, insulated from feedback. Yes. And yeah. Oh, boy, you just nailed it. That is exactly it. So Say more. Okay. So, well, I'll, I'll just talk about the feet part, um, and you can talk about the other parts. So, again, more nerve endings in the bottom of your feet than anywhere else except fingertips and lips. And similarly, um, there's more bones and joints in your feet than, well, a quarter of the bones and joints of your body are in your feet. And again, this is not an accident. You're supposed to bend, flex, and feel the world. And most people don't get the relationship between what you're feeling and how your brain functions. They think of the brain as just a passive perceiver, but it's not. It's a, it's, there's this very intricate feedback loop. So um, here's a weird example that will that'll help elaborate or elucidate. If you taped your first two fingers together, your brain, after not very long, would stop thinking that you have four fingers and a thumb, it would think you had three fingers and a thumb. And literally, the part of your brain that maps to feeling those fingers would stop functioning as two separate things and would function as one. The brain map, they refer to it as as de-differentiating. So differentiated is you have a piece of the brain pointing to one finger, another piece of the brain next door to it pointing to the next finger. It de-differentiates and it acts like one unit. And at that point, not only do you not feel differently from those two fingers, you can't move them independently either. If you take off the tape, you won't be able to move them independently. So similarly, if you cut off the feedback that your feet are giving you, your brain basically goes, oh, well, there's nothing at the end of your leg, so we're just going to stop paying attention to it, which not only means we don't feel things, which can cause us to bump into stuff and step on things that are dangerous, but it, all, uh, and, and, but it also makes it so we can't move effectively either. And that can lead to balance problems because you're – most of the information you're getting, uh, or a lot of information you're getting in your, into your uh, brain about balance comes from your feet as well as your vestibular system. And this can lead to um, things like elderly people not being able to walk well, falling down, breaking hips, and dying, which is what happened to my father six months ago. So actually, so, geez, eight months ago now. So um, we, have a, we have an amazing email from an 80-year-old customer who read a blog post that I wrote. Like every, every six months or so, there's some news story where some researchers have said, hey, doing yoga helps elderly people get their balance. Hey, Tai Chi helps elderly people get their balance. Hey, magic vibrating insoles that stimulate the bottom of your feet help elderly people get their balance. And I wrote a blog post that basically says, hey, just take off your damn shoes and go for a walk. And we got an email from this 80-year-old guy who was actually looking for the magic vibrating insoles, found my blog post, couldn't find the insoles, and so he put it to the test and kicked off his shoes. And he said, that was two weeks ago, and I just threw away my walker. So now more than that, that's sort of an extreme case. But for what, what, why barefoot running became a thing is that when you can't feel the ground with your feet when you're running, when you're in heavily padded motion-controlled shoes, or what we affectionately refer to as foot coffins, um, you you don't end up using your muscles, ligaments, and tendons as the natural shock absorbers and springs that they are designed to be. And what you end up doing, typically, is landing with your leg in a non-optimal position from a biomechanical standpoint, and also landing with a straight leg with your heel first, which puts what's referred to as an impact transient force spike, giant spike of force, through your ankle, your knee, your hip, your back, uh, all the way up into your neck. And so Daniel Lieberman at Harvard showed that when you take off your shoes, you actually put less force into the ground because, backing up to the feedback thing, it hurts otherwise. And so we're not idiots. We find ways to move that hurt less, 
and these tend to be um, they tend to help people eliminate pain, injury, and suffering. The number of people who have emailed us and reported that they couldn't walk, couldn't hike, couldn't run until they took off their shoes and went barefoot or in a pair of our product zero shoes uh, is just through the roof. I mean, we, we literally get one of those every day. Wow. And it, it makes so much sense when you think of about, course. you know, like if, if you, if you took your, your neck and put a neck brace on from an injury yeah. and then you yeah. just never took it off. Like, yeah. you know, then you think, well, if I took it off, I would injure it again. I have no musculature. I have. And, and yet it, there's a, there's a huge blowback for for trying to externally protect ourselves from things that we naturally have the ability to take care of. If we Absolutely. Get well, it, it's sort of like and, and even worse. Imagine you walked into the doctor and instead of saying my neck hurts and having him put you in a neck brace, you said my wrist hurts and he puts you in a neck brace. So that's what happens with orthotics and motion controlled footwear is you walk in saying I have a pain in somewhere and these guys who get paid $500 for every pair of orthotics they make for you say well you clearly pardon me you clearly need orthotics and uh, orthotics there's a great article in the New York Times from my favorite science writer uh, in part because I love her writing and in part because I love her name her name is Gina Colada and she analyzed the research on motion control and orthotics and they seem to work in about 10% of the population, no one knows why it's that 10% or how to identify if you're one of those 10%. And a $500 orthotic is no better than a, I don't know, $10 Dr. Scholl's insole that you get at Walmart. So the, but the, and in fact, a friend of mine's in physical therapy school and the guy who came up with the idea of how to make an orthotic to support your foot literally made it up. It was just total fiction, and then he figured out a way to monetize it, and it became – now it's been 40 years. You know, now it's common wisdom that, well, clearly your feet need support when no one would think that about any other part of your body. You would never, you would never um, uh, put someone in a body cast and tell them to go play tennis, but that's what we do with our feet. Right. Well, it reminds me of this uh, old Jewish joke that I'm, I'm probably going to butcher a little bit, but basically a guy goes to the tailor. And the tailor, you know, makes him a suit, but the tailor's terrible. Gets all the measurements wrong. So the guy tries the suit, and he's like, "Hey, this, this, you know, the sleeve is t- is too short." He says, "Well, pull your elbow in a little bit, and then it'll <laughs> look good." He says, "But the leg is too long." He says, "Well, then bend your other knee, and then you know it, it's tight in the in the back." So he says, "Well, bend 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 your neck forward," and the guy walks out the door, and he's walking like this. And someone says, "Oh my God, tell me, your tailor must be incredible to be able to fit a cripple like you." <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I hadn't heard that one. I like it. Um, it it's totally like that. It, it's really, it's amazing. I met a guy just recently who uh, he said to me, well, I can't wear your shoes because I have plantar fasciitis and I've had it for 20 years. And I went, I'm sorry, what? He's, I've had it for 20 years. I said, then you don't have plantar fasciitis because plantar fasciitis is an inflammation. It's an injury basically. And you don't have an injury like that, an inflammation, an inflammatory injury for 20 years. Tell me more. So he says, well, you know, about 20 years ago, I was having all this pain in my foot and my heel. And I go to the doctor and he said, I have plantar fasciitis. And he put me in these orthotics. And, um, you know, I've, I've been in them all that time. I've had to get new ones, of course. And uh, I said, well, how are you just like walking barefoot across the floor in your house? And he goes, oh, my God, I can't do that. I've, I have hardwood floors. I went, dude, I run miles on cement. The fact that you can't run on a, walk on a hardwood floor is you got a little misunderstood. And he said, well, you know, actually it went away one day about 10 years ago. It just disappeared one day and then came back about a year and a half later. I said, well, then that's proof 
you don't have plantar fasciitis because an inflammatory injury doesn't happen like that. I said, I can tell you what happened. 20 years ago, you went to the doctor with symptoms that sounded like plantar fasciitis. Did the guy massage your calf by chance? And he says, no, why? I said, because here's what's going on. You have tight calves that pull on the plantar fascia from the, the top side, if you will, and, and give symptoms that are similar to plantar fasciitis. Then, you know, he's just giving you, he's got a hammer and everything looks like a nail, so he gave you an orthotic. An orthotic instantly makes your foot weaker. And over time, like putting it in the cast, if you keep it in a cast, it just gets weaker and weaker and weaker. And then during that year and a half that you were off, it was because your calf somehow released for some strange reason and then started again. It's just a little, probably a nerve thing. You might have something to check on your spine, frankly. Um, but all I, all I can tell you is if you just did some simple little exercises while you were watching TV, just to wake your feet up again and tell your brain that you have them, Within a couple of weeks, you could walk to the bathroom on your hardwood floors, and then I can give you some other exercises that within you know a few months, you could probably just throw away the orthotics, and a few months after that, if you wanted to run totally barefoot, out of your orthotics, out of your shoes, I, I would bet even money. Actually, I, I would bet 100 bucks that you could do that without blinking, because I've seen it thousands of times now, and he just looked at me like I was insane, because he went to a doctor who told him these things, and I, I was a pre-med. My friends who went into medical school, not the smartest guys in the school, you know, as my, or as it's another old joke. What do you call someone who graduates at the bottom of his class in medical school? Doctor. So this is going to be very new to people unless they're part of the, you know, barefoot running community or they read born to run. Now, wait, I'm going to interrupt. It's not. And I'll tell you why, why I interrupt to say that anyone who's listening, think about what you did as a kid. Think about what your kids do in the summer. Think about how hard it is to get shoes on a child and why they complain about it. Um, think about what it feels like when you put yourself in a shoe that squeezes your feet. Think about how you feel at the end of the day when you've been standing not, uh, on your feet all day in, in whatever shoe you've been trying to stand in all day. Think about native cultures who don't have footwear, who don't have these problems, who run and walk and hike barefoot on surfaces, everyone says, well, you know, their surfaces are way nicer than what we have. It's like, no, 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 no. They are rocky, gritty, hard things that you would never want to walk on. And they do it without a problem. Oh, they have giant calluses. No, actually, they don't. Um, so it's, but the biggest one is think back to being a kid or watching kids. And their kids, typically, they run, they walk, they do all these things barefoot with amazing form, perfect form, until you start putting them in shoes. All right. So let, let me rephrase. Okay. <laughs> this is new to people as a, a as something coming from the outside. So we have we have, you know, mm. we have common sense, we have body wisdom, we have experience, yeah. but in terms of the experts, like if you go if you go to yeah. a, a a running store, these, <laughs> these days there will be a yeah. small selection of zero drop shoes. Yeah. Of sem you know, quote barefoot shoes, but still, if you yeah. go there, they're gonna they're gonna measure your gait. They're gonna they're gonna figure out if you pronate or supinate. That, oh that, God, I love that, you. You know, that's what I'm saying. That the top yeah, yeah, yeah. advice so, people are getting is still right. you have to you have to technology will save you from your from your screwed up body. Right, and of course it never has because you try a new technology every year when the new technology comes out. Look, there are a couple of things. You, you, now we got to unpack what you just said. So first of all. 
if you look at how, let's talk about running shoes in particular. If you look at how running shoes are sold, the pitch is always, hey, here's our new magic technology. And amazingly, there's a new one every six months. Or it's, hey, don't you want to be like this guy who's wearing shoes that are custom made for him and not the ones you're going to buy? The only reason that someone sells based on, hey, here's something amazing, new technology, or hey, don't you want to be like this guy, is because they don't have anything real to back up what they're doing. There is The running shoe industry is a $6 billion a year industry domestically. There is a massive financial incentive for one company to make a shoe that is demonstrably better than another shoe, that demonstrably and scientifically can be shown to reduce injury and improve performance. And yet, in 45 years since the invention of the modern running shoe, no shoe company has been able to do that. It isn't from lack of trying. It isn't from lack of financial motivation. It's because the fundamental premise is wrong. And the fundamental premise is that you need a whole bunch of padding and an elevated heel on your shoe so that you can land on your heels when you run. Here's the joke. A, when you run on your heels, when you land on your heels, you're, you're landing on a ball joint. You're landing on something that's round, which doesn't have anything to support it. So you end up pronating or supinating. So once you make enough padding to land on your heel, then you have to change the padding to prevent the pronation or supination that you just caused. So the fundamental idea is faulty. And in fact, I talked to a guy who knows the orthopedic surgeon who originally recommended to Bill Bowerman at Nike that they make elevated heel running shoes. Uh, the story that I was told was Bowerman had some new runners show up on the track who he put them in the waffle trainers that he had invented, which were very, they were zero drop, which means the heel was not elevated from the ball of the foot. They were really thin, uh, maybe half an inch thick tops. And a number of these runners got uh, Achilles tendonitis. And so Bill consults with this orthopedic surgeon who said, well, clearly they've come from wearing high heeled shoes. And so their Achilles tendon has shortened. And so they need higher heeled running shoes to compensate for that. A couple of years later, the guy recanted and said, you know, I just made that up. Um, we were making a lot of prosthetic devices for people, so we saw everything through a prosthetic lens, but that was definitely not the cause and definitely not the solution. But by that time, this whole idea of high-heeled running shoes had just swept. I mean, people just grabbed it and ran with it, pun intended, uh, because the footwear industry is a whole bunch of fast followers. Someone does something that starts to make sales, everyone else starts to do it regardless of whether it's true or not. Okay, so that's... But people, oh, must have, other, people must have wait, liked it at first, right? Hold on, one, one other piece, though. The other piece is, is the one that you said about you go into a running shoe store and the experts are helping you. These are mostly 23-year-old kids who got trained by some manager of the store who got trained by, believe it or not, the shoe manufacturers. And they've been getting this same training called You Need Our Magic Technology now for 45 years. So if you, if no one has a memory, no one has any history. If you look at running shoes from any time prior to 1972, they were flat, thin, flexible shoes. And all I can tell you is if you look at the research, injury rates have not changed since the invention of the modern running shoe. The only thing that's changed is people have gotten amnesia and have forgotten what people were doing for, well, geez, you know, 100 plus years uh, with performance shoes that in the modern world, but obviously thousands and thousands of years just with human beings and running around to get from place to place. All right, but I, I want to ask you about the, 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 the takeoff in sales because there must have been something that people liked about these shoes when they put them on. <laughs> no. Um, well, y yes and no. So there are a couple of things. If there's, there's a, um, there are two really great books 
um, that if you, for anyone who's interested, one is called Sneaker Wars, and it's about the battle between um, Adidas and uh, Puma, who it was two brothers, the Dossler brothers. Uh, one started, well, they both started Adidas, and then the um, that's Adi Dossler, and then his brother left and started Puma, literally across the river in the same town. Uh, it was like the Hatfields and the Coys. That's an incredible book, and there's a book called Swoosh about Nike. And if you look at what they did, they went from just selling products that were built for performance to athletes to learning how to take that idea that, um, well, simply if soccer was what really made it move, if soccer players were all wearing on a team, were all wearing um, Adidas shoes, suddenly sales of Adidas stuff went through the roof. So there was a lot of competition just to get visibility. Um, and what people were doing for performance was, how do I want to put it? Um, yeah, when you put padding on your feet, it can feel good at first, but that doesn't mean it's good for you. So if you lie down on a Tempur-Pedic mattress, a big foam mattress, it feels really good, but then try to jump on it. Um, it's not good for performance and it's actually not good for your joints because you end up again, ironically, putting more force through your joints when you have the padding, uh, try, well, when your body tries to use the padding. So what feels good initially is not necessarily good for you in the long run, and by the time it catches up to you, they've got, hey, here's a new technology to deal with that pain that you're now experiencing. So, so people are um, influenced by, their, by their, their athlete friends, but then they might also say, look, like if I watch the Olympics, and I watch uh -huh. the, and I watch the sprinters and I watch the marathoners. They're all wearing shoes. Like yeah, but but look at what they're wearing. They're, the sprinters are wearing sprinting spikes, which is basically a thin piece of hard plastic between you and the ground with spikes. And the distance runners are all wearing racing flats, which are ultra lightweight, ultra thin, zero drop shoes. They're not wearing the gel Kayano. They're not wearing hokas. They're not wearing things with with elevated heels and padding. And yet that's what – then you walk in and – but they'll put their name on one of those big shoes. And then you walk into a store and people say, well, you can't actually run in the shoes that those guys run in because they're professional runners. You need these instead. And everyone just nods their head as if that's a I – mean, they don't recognize that's a non sequitur. So have, have companies – It's a scam, Howie. It's a scam. I mean I'm just going to call a spade a spade. Seriously, man. It is a total propaganda – advertising and marketing supported scam. The fundamental premise for why you need padding and motion control is completely false and has never been proven to be true. And it's been marketed to us now for so long that people have forgotten that it was just, that it was just made up. End of story. Okay. So let's, I mean, you know, my, my, me and my listeners have no trouble believing in corporate scams because we, <laughs> we, we talk a lot about the medical world, the psychiatric world and the food world where, yeah. where the truth is, is clearly different from what most people are hearing. But let's, let's, so let's move a little bit to, um, you know, born to run was a, a blockbuster bestseller. Lots of people were talking about it, at least in, in, in my world. It's about a you know, yeah. very good story about a guy who goes to discover this, this ghostly, mysterious white runner who lives among the Tarahumara Indians and it's a great <laughs> tale. And so, but now all of a sudden the shoe companies see a market for, well, right. The same way, the same way that, you know, the dairy industry started buying up almond milk when they saw yep. people were going vegan. So let's talk yep. about that market for a little bit. The, yeah. first, the first pair well, of shoes I bought were five fingers 
Uh, yeah, you 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 over you overlook the first thing that happened in two thousand nine um, when Born to Run first started to get a little traction. It didn't really kick until two thousand ten, um, but in two thousand nine, the first response from the shoe companies were a full page ads and giant email blasts saying, "Don't believe this crap. This is all bullshit." And it was amazing. And I wrote some scathing responses back where I basically said, you know, show me the research where what you're doing is in any way beneficial. Find me one piece of research that a big padded shoe is giving, is improving performance and reducing injuries. And it didn't exist. No one, no one was giving that. I did show research from Harvard's Daniel Lieberman, from Harvard's Irene Davis, from, well, formerly Harvard's, formerly from Harvard, uh, Casey Kerrigan, where they did show that shoes were problematic. Um, and there's, there are companies that make orthotics that say, hey, you put in our, our orthotic and it's 37% less stress instantly. And I said, less stress, you mean less muscle activation? They go, well, I mean, that's what we're measuring. We're measuring muscle, muscle, measuring muscle activation. <laughs> I said, so what you just said is you wear these orthotics and you instantly get 37% weaker. It's like having a soft cast on your foot. So how is that going to be beneficial in the long run? So anyway, the first thing was them just completely saying, trying to distance themselves from it and convince people that it was just a scam, that what we were talking about, natural movement, was a scam, despite um, the fact that in, in Born to Run, it talks about the Tatarumara coming up and running the Leadville 100, the highest ultramarathon in the world, and running it either barefoot or in their Warache sandals, which are just thin strips of uh, tire rubber strapped to their feet and throwing away the shoes that they were given to run the race in because they couldn't run in those things. So that was the first thing. But then you're right. They saw the writing was on the wall, and they started doing things to capitalize on it, and they made a whole new category called minimalist shoes that um, they claimed gave the same benefits that those of us who were barefoot or really, really close to it uh, were talking about. And there was no barefoot runner in the world who would ever tell you that a minimalist shoe is going to give you the same benefits as being barefoot or in something like zero shoes, which with our first product was just four millimeters of really flexible rubber. Um, we did some testing and showed that people were biomechanically identical wearing that than, uh, than uh, when, when they were barefoot. So they conflated the claims to their product uh, to sell product, the, and, and it worked. Um, but they never believed in it, and even the most successful companies uh, that were making minimalist products were planning to pull out of that market as their sales were still growing. So uh, one of the, my favorite things is uh, the big companies started making fewer minimalist products, which meant they had fewer to sell into retail, which meant retailers couldn't sell as much, which meant buyers couldn't buy as much. And then the buying groups reported that the buying was down and said, well, clearly people don't want these products. It's like, Wait, 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 what? <laughs> wait, there, there's nothing in the supply chain, so they can't buy them. That's why the buying is down. But nonetheless, it's still maintained. It's about 15 to 20% of the, of the running shoe market right now is, is minimalist products. Uh, so there's, 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 again, it's all propaganda and manipulation about what's, what the shoe companies want to sell, what's available to you, and then what happens when you walk in the store and ask for advice from some 23-year-old kid who was trained by the shoe rep. So I have a bunch of questions about that because it, okay. do, it doesn't make sense to me as a, uh, as a student of capitalism that they would depress the market for something that was selling oh, well. It's easy. Oh, yeah, it's easy. Um, because... <clears throat> 
the the whole idea of minimalism completely violates the rest of the, the unique selling proposition for their entire product line. For them to totally embrace minimalism fully and make products that are genuinely minimalist, genuinely close to barefoot, that genuinely support a natural movement, they what they'd be saying is that their rest the entirety of the rest of their product line is bullshit. All that padded motion control stuff you don't need. It's a very hard sell. Adidas tried it. Um, and by the way, I'm switching from Adidas to Adidas back and forth. If you're if you're a quote shoe guy or you're from Europe, it's Adidas. Uh, so uh, I, I I tend to do that, um, uh, which I know sounds horribly pretentious. But um, uh, if uh, Adi tried to do it, where they made a they started the idea of transition shoes. They have here's our big thick shoe, here's our most minimal shoe, and here's two shoes in between that you need to buy to make the transition from our big thick one to our our lo lower one. First of all, the whole idea of transition shoes is also complete propaganda and, and bullshit. Um, but the the biggest thing they found is that they were they're ultimately it was confusing the customer because they didn't know what they really needed and what they needed to buy and it's like well if i'm eventually going to go to this minimalist thing why am i looking at this other stuff which is how you make 80% of your money so so in in my field in nutrition um a lot of people who make money selling supplements talk about yeah. bioindividuality where we're all different yeah. and we all you know on a cellular level we all need to kind of get these extreme tests, and it sounds like um, the only argument that could work for a company selling minimalist shoes and the, the, the foot coffins is to say, mm -hmm. well, some people do better with these and some people do better with those. Well, that's where they've landed. Um, so Adi still has uh, there still has a minimalist product. Merrill still makes a, minim a couple of minimalist things. So does New Balance. Um, Nike Nike almost started it with a product that they call minimalist, the Nike Free, that's actually got a big thick heel and tons of padding. So that's where they've landed, uh, and and they're doing that. But the challenge for for why they stopped promoting the whole minimalist idea in a big way. Uh, was also that when you get out of a big motion controlled shoe, especially if we back up to the idea of brain de-differentiation, if you can't really feel the ground and get that feedback, you're not going to make the changes necessary to run properly or even walk properly, frankly. And if you don't make those changes, you can uh, end up getting something like plantar fasciitis or Achilles tendonitis or a stress fracture. If basically you run like you're in big thick shoes when you're not, that can be problematic. And the big companies didn't want to spend time, effort, and money to educate people about changing anything. They would rather just try and let people, you know, make people um, accommodate to their same old, same old plan of let's make things that don't really work, that eventually cause injuries anyway, uh, and then um, and then sell them whatever our new technology is. The injury rates be uh, between shod runners and unshod, barefoot runners, is um, no one knows if there's any real, real difference. Uh, so the, the bot, there was actually just a report about that where someone did some analysis and said uh, barefoot runners don't get injured less, less than people in shoes. And they, the way that was spun was, see, barefoot's not better for you. It's like, wait, 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 it's the other way around. If, if shoes that are designed to protect you and make you safer don't do anything better than barefoot, there's no there there. <laughs> Well, I mean, one, one of the things that I noticed, so my first barefoot, barefoot quote, shoe um, I was turned on to was the Vibram Five Fingers. And right. I'm, I'm ashamed to say this was in 2005, and my, my pair were bright blue. <laughs> and I have large feet, so I feel like I was walking around with this flashing neon sign on my feet saying, weirdo. Um, well, you, 
That was true. Yeah, well, it's, it, it was, but I didn't, and it still is, but I don't need to advertise it, per se. <laughs> yeah. But, but, you know, that, um, I mean, that was, I, I guess, you know, it's, it's mainstream now. Like, I look and I see people wearing those shoes, and the toes are all separate. Um, yeah. Well, it's certainly, you know, I wouldn't and, call but it the other, the, other thing, the, thing, the other thing I want to say about that is when I bought them, and we bought, you know, the whole family was together, and we, we like, all of a sudden discovered Barefoot. And this yeah. was the only option I saw. We paid $120 a pair in 2005. Yeah. Like, this was, <laughs> this was a serious yeah. chunk of change. And, mm-hmm. and one of the things was, like, why are the minimalist shoes more expensive, more expensive. than the regular ones? Yeah. Well, I can answer that. Um, and I tried on my first pair of here. I'll be, I'll be pretentious again. My first pair of Vibram, because it's uh, it, it, the guy. It's like a, a name of an Italian guy um, concatenated the same way Adidas is. Uh, the five fingers, I tried them on in 2005 as well. And if they had fit my feet, I would have never started zero shoes. But let's just say luckily they didn't. Uh, and luckily they didn't because I don't know about you, but everyone that I've ever talked to, uh, when they say they have, they wear five fingers, I say, um, how, how's the smell? Where do you keep them? And they go, oh, that's, that's a good point. But um, the, just because someone looks something looks like bare feet doesn't mean it's a barefoot product. And why it's more expensive? Uh, it, now, for that product, the reason it was more expensive is because what it takes to construct that thing was completely different than what it takes to construct a running shoe. Much more difficult. But why minimalist shoes are more expensive than uh, than traditional shoes is two reasons. One is that they're selling less of them so that their production cost, the economy of scale hasn't kicked in. When you're, when you're making a million of something every month, you get better pricing than when you're making 10,000 of them a month. The other is they knew it was a new market. The whole barefoot or barefoot minimalist thing um, was brand new, and they know that the early adopters in a new market are willing to pay more than the mainstream. So if you look now, prices have come down or the companies have made products that are very similar but have a lower price point. So they were just taking advantage of what they knew the market would bear when you have you know crazy evangelical people who are willing to look nuts in front of their friends and family for a while. So that's, that's the, the economics of that. Gotcha. So, um, so I, I'm on my third pair of, of zero shoes, or I guess my first pair of zero shoes. The first two were called invisible shoes. <laughs> right. Original branding. Um, but I did, you know, so I like to go running in the winter. And so I did mm-hmm. go and I found a pair of New Balance, I guess they're Minimus, mm-hmm. um, which were, again, like over $100. And yeah. it's, it's still... Um, there's still, it's still, it's not a mainstream product. So they're still not getting the economy of scale. And they know that the people, I mean, there's no, they have no reason to lower the price. People, people who want to buy these products are not price sensitive. Because they don't have, because and the reason is they just don't have any or many choices. When 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 every company, when Nike makes one minimalist product, when Merrill makes one, when New Balance makes one, when uh, Puma doesn't even make one, um, when when there's a very limited selection and there's still a demand that's still a little niche, they just have no incentive to drop the price. Gotcha. Now, your shoes don't cost hundred dollars a pair. No, that's because we think that that whole economic model is uh, reprehensible. So let's let's, so, let's talk about the evolution of invisible shoes slash zero shoes because you have you've been at it for a while. You you know obviously from from just talking to you already, people have a sense that you're a you're a business person. You understand you know 
business and marketing and sales as well as, as running. Um, how did you go about turning this hobby into a, a thriving business? Oh, man. Um, it's a combination of um, completely unreproducible lucky factors, which includes everything, pardon me, from my history to my wife's history to people that we have brunch with. Uh, when we started the company as Invisible Shoes in November of 2009, and check this out, by the way, our first sale on our website, November 23rd, 2009, was to someone in Minnesota who, who bought our, our do-it-yourself barefoot sandal making kit, November Minnesota. So he went, well, that's interesting. Uh, so at first, the first year, almost, not quite a year, eh, actually, yeah, the first year, what we sold was a do-it-yourself kit that was made out of sheets of Vibram rubber that we were buying from a distributor that we were cutting into smaller sheets, laces that we were getting from Home Depot in these, I don't know, 100-foot spools that we were cutting into smaller pieces, and instructions that we put out freely on the web. I mean, you could reproduce our product by just sourcing your own materials if you wanted to. It's just that it was actually very hard to, to find materials. Um, and if you did, you'd have to buy a whole bunch of them. So the biggest thing we were providing was an easier way of buying the materials that you needed at a better price than uh, what you could do on your own. So that was how it all began. And it was just, again, it was a little hobby lifestyle business. We ran it out of a corner, literally a corner of a spare bedroom. And when I say corner, I mean on the floor in a corner. And it was, it was, I know this is going to sound funny. It was, Lena and I literally debated, do we go out and buy a table to put this stuff on? Yeah. <laughs> and then, and then after we put it on a table, we then went, oh my God, we need two more tables. And that was a big deal. Like crap, we got three tables in this extra bedroom. What are we going to do? And then it expanded uh, into our living room and then our dining room and then our garage and then our basement and then uh, our second bedroom. And it just took over the entire house. Uh, so somewhere in the middle of it. How are people finding it? Uh, thanks. To, well, the interwebs. So when I built that website, Lena was a little uh, disgruntled. And so to ungruntlify her the next morning, I said, look, the people who are ranking in the search engines for the keywords that I care about related to barefoot running were clearly all there by accident. Uh, and I said, there's no one who's deliberately trying to capture these keywords. And I knew how to do that. So I said, just give me a couple months. I'm going to own this market. And within three months, I owned that market. If you searched for any barefoot related keyword that I cared about, um, within the top 50 results, I had 40 of them, sometimes more. And so we just dominated that for, for a while. And I also, the other thing I did is I made YouTube videos that I put up. Uh, that just showed people how to make our products and how to do it on your own. And I just freely shared those. And I, um, we reached out to bloggers who were hip to the whole barefoot idea and um, asked them to review our products. And what else did we do at that time? Um, that was most of it. That was really how that ball got rolling. Uh, then about nine months in, we well, six months in, we were having brunch with some friends, which we do every Sunday. We've been having this group of people getting together every year or every Sunday for 
geez, like 18 years now. And uh, someone brought a friend of a friend and she said, so I hear you guys make shoes. And we said, well, you know, I mean, sandals. She goes, but you're in the footwear business. Like, well, frankly, we just sell do-it-yourself kits. She goes, but you're in the footwear business. Like, all right, fine, we're in the footwear business. She goes, do you know what my family does? I said, I, I just met you. I don't even know what you do. She says, oh, my family uh, owns the North American manufacturing and distribution rights for Chaco, Teva, Keen, Simple, Ugg. And she just goes down and lists every major shoe brand that you could think of. I said, oh, my. She says, yeah, we should probably talk. <laughs> so, so we did. And a little while later, she introduces us to some guys who all met at Reebok about 40 years ago when it was maybe a quarter of the size that we are now. And these were guys who were designers and sourcing, uh, sourcing um, experts and logistical experts that Reebok had hired. And they came and sat down with us and told us how to run our business and helped us design our first our first custom-made product, which is still a do-it-yourself kit, but it was uh, custom-made um, materials that were better than the Vibram rubber that were foot-shaped to begin with, that were just easier to work with and had some fun colors and uh, different sizes. And so they were very helpful. And then, um, oh man, uh, we a couple of years later we ended up meeting a guy. This is a great one. Um, uh, two chihuahua or two dogs are responsible for one of the biggest things in our business. We, there was this friend of ours who's a massage therapist who was walking his dog. And normally his wife walks the dog. And he bumps into this other guy who was walking his dog. And normally his wife walks their dog. And the dogs knew each other. So the dog started hanging out. So the guy started talking. And our friend said to this other guy, what do you do? And he says, well, I just quit working at, um, Ch uh, at Crocs, where I was their head of global product design. And my friend says, oh, you should talk to my friend Stephen Lena, who got a footwear company. And he handed a phone number over, and I called the guy. And this is a guy who's been designing footwear for 40 years. And we just had a great lunch. And I said, I'd love to hire someone you know, like you, but 20 years younger, someone who's get, trying to get his feet wet. And this guy, Dennis Driscoll, said, well, why don't you hire me? Um, I think you're doing the most interesting thing in footwear, and, I'm, and I'd love to work for you. I said, I don't think I can afford a guy who was making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year at, at Crocs. He goes, I'm retired. I don't need the money. I'm like, you're hired. So... <laughs> Um, so we've been working with Dennis and, and in the middle of all of that, right around the time we hired Dennis actually is when we appeared on Shark Tank. So getting in front of 8 million people did not hurt either. Mm, let's talk about Shark Tank because I, I, I watched that one and it was actually the first Shark Tank I had watched. So I, I, mm. I, I hadn't been a fan of the show. Um, oh, that's great. So, you know, so every, every, everything that happened was like, I, I, you know, when they were kind of rude to you a little bit or, or dismissive. I was like, yeah, I really took it personally. <laughs> you know, I, I, did, I didn't realize that that was the, you know, that, that was the genre. What, how did, how did you get on Shark Tank and what, what was, you know, what, what was the experience like and, and what happened as a result of it? Well, um, Again, more luck in many ways. We, we'd been watching, well, people kept trying to, kept telling us we should be on this show. So we started watching it and we got really into it. And I, uh, I saw that um, the casting was starting at, at some point in the spring. And I just waited until they said, now we're, we're taking casting calls. And there were three ways that they were uh, doing that. You could send an email to them and they said they read all the emails. You could show up at a live audition uh, or they they were doing a little bit of scouting on their own. They do more of that now, but th they were doing a little bit of that then. So I sent in an email, and I was literally about to book a ticket to Chicago to go to one of the live auditions, thinking that I would present better live than I would via email. And I got a phone call from um, one of the 
production company people saying, hey, we got your uh, we got your email and we read it and liked it and wanted to talk to you. It turned out that the woman who read it, her boyfriend was a barefoot runner. So she was hip to what we were up to. So that was a huge amount of luck. And we had this hour long interview. And at the end, they said, great. Um, if you could make us a video just that shows who you are and what you're doing and answer these 500 questions uh, in five minutes or less and get that to us by Monday or Tuesday, this is on a Thursday, uh, that would be great. And I said, yeah, no problem. Um, I'll have that to you on Monday. And meanwhile, my wife, Lena, is panicking because unbeknownst to me, she had planned a surprise 50th birthday party for me on two days later. So, so um, we made it through the party. Uh, I was totally surprised. And then on Sunday, we shot the video. And on Monday, I gave it to them. And then they called back and said, hey, here's all this paperwork we need you to fill out. Um, it's just, you know, formality. It's just you're going on to the next step. It doesn't mean anything. Just fill it out and get it to us within a week. So we did that, and then the the literally the moment that FedEx delivered it uh, to their door, they called us and said, "We want you on the show," and it's going to be about eight weeks from now. And so we were kind of bummed because we had gotten all geared up and we were ready to go. And then three weeks later, they called and said, "We need you here in three days." So, um, so in the meantime, we had been preparing like crazy. We read the autobiography of every one of the sharks. <clears throat> we watched every episode of Shark Tank as well as the Canadian version called Dragon's Den and the UK version called Dragon's Den. Um, we did a bunch of mock Shark Tank things with a friend of ours who's a, a big deal business guy who was almost on the show. They said they wanted him on the show and then at the last minute backed out. Uh, we talked to investors, we talked to bankers, we talked to footwear people who've sold companies, we talked to people who bought companies just to get an idea about the valuation. We just did everything we could to prepare. Getting on the show, being there was really interesting because when you watch the show, it looks like a conversation. When you're doing the show, it is anything but. So the sharks, they aren't giving you their rapt attention. They're often trying to just make notes and figure out whatever they want to do next or say next to make their funny one-liner that's going to make the preview uh, video uh, or is going to make a good you know point against one of the other sharks. They're 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 in their own private Idaho a lot. And so uh, it, and then one of them will ask you five questions, and when you're answering question number three, the other another one will ask you ten questions, and when you switch to answer question two, the first shark gets mad, and then a third shark asks you seven more questions and so it's really kind of a free-for-all and uh and they do that somewhat deliberately to make you make it difficult for you and um uh but at the same time it was also really uh calm and comfortable you don't see the cameras around you so you don't have that feeling there's a false sense of familiarity because you've been watching these people on television and now you are once you get over the fact that they're right in front of you you feel a certain again, familiarity with them. So that's easy. In fact, you have to be careful of that because you have to remember they don't know who you are. So if you get too familiar, you're likely to say something or do something stupid because think about what you would say to a friend versus a potential investor. Uh, so there's there's that. And and because we, we knew our business, we knew what we were doing. So we knew we could handle pretty much everything. Uh, what we couldn't handle, what we weren't expecting, were things that got on the cutting room floor. Like Barbara didn't like me, according to what you see on the show. But what you didn't see is that she hated me. <laughs> so, she, the, the, her opening line uh, to me was, you know, I hated you from the moment you walked out here. You look like my ex-husband. And I started laughing. I mean, what am I going to do about that? So I, in fact, I, I tweeted to her the night of the show, you should have invested, Barbara. I would have used some of that money for plastic surgery. Uh, and 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 interestingly, you, you know, you have to you have to be very careful. Like 
when she said, you look like my ex-husband, and so I hate you, I didn't give her the glib response that went through my mind, which is, so wait, you're angry at the ex-husband who's the one who got you into real estate and financed your first deals, which allowed you to then become a real estate magnate and make $60 million? I'm okay if I look like that guy. So that's the appropriate response, but you can't do things like that on national television when it's getting edited because they could make you look like a really obnoxious dude. So um, so that was a little uh, something. What you don't see also on the cutting room floor is every objection that they had we hit out of the park so far that at one point Robert jumps out of his chair and yells, you have a perfect answer for every question. And I looked at him literally just incredulous. I said, it's our business, Robert. Uh, but like, you know, when Damon says, it's just rubber and string. I said, Damon, you of all people know that a brand is more than the components of a product because he was making jeans and T-shirts. It's like cotton and thread and ink. And so when I said that, Cuban says to him, perfect answer. And, and so um, we, you know, we were pretty confident going in. We, we could justify our valuation. We knew why we were doing the things we were doing. They kept trying to catch us on things. It was really funny. Like at one point, um, I think, I don't maybe it was Cuban. Actually, wait, I'll tell you two stories. Cuban, uh, you'll appreciate this one as a marketing guy. At one point, uh, Mark Cuban and I get, got into an argument about email open rates. And I said, well, we sent out a newsletter recently. And you know, what do you think a good email open rate is for a newsletter? And he says, over 50%. And I said, I'm sorry, what? And he said, well, I get a 50% open rate when I send out email. I said, does your email subject line, this is Mark Cuban, and I just found a million dollars that I want to give you? He's, no, no, no. When we send out just the, the newsletter to the, the Mavericks mailing list, we get a 50% open rate. I said, I have find that incredibly hard to believe. And I turned to Robert. I said, have you ever heard of anyone with a generic list like that getting a 50% open rate? Because Robert was an e-commerce guy. And Robert just shakes his head. So Cuban and I kind of got into you know the the, the weeds about about e-commerce and email open rates and things. Cuban also was a little disconcerted when he found out that my previous company was a software product that he owned. And that made him a little, um, that kind of chilled him a little bit. And, uh, and then, um, wait, there was one other thing that I was going to mention about, um, uh, something he said or something Damon said. Um, uh, I can't remember. Um, Anyway, so, oh, oh, he asked us about justifying our valuation, and I was able to do that. He said, oh, uh, you guys said that Lena owns the company, but your husband and wife, what's going on there? As if they caught us on a big thing. And I said, oh, um, my software company was involved in a lawsuit with some programmers who didn't do their job, and we thought they might go after us personally. So it was just an asset protection strategy. It's like, oh, okay. So every time they thought they had some like, oh, we just got you. It's like, no, not really. And so from that perspective, it was great. On the other hand, you know that the show gets edited, but when we walked off the set, we realized that if they really wanted to, they could make us look really stupid. They could cut it together however they wanted and make us look like whatever they wanted. I, I have a master's degree in film, and our, one of our first uh, uh, assignments when we were in our editing class was we all got the same footage of a fight scene from a 1950s television show, and we just had to go edit the footage into a fight scene. Hmm. 20 people came back with 20 completely different fight scenes. And so, again, walking off the set, I knew, man, they could make us whatever they want. So we were really, really nervous about how it was going to look until the moment that it aired. And that was, um, that was a really big relief. And we were, we were, even though they didn't show all of our, our best answers, we were really happy with how it turned out. And to answer your question, we did about three months worth of sales in the week following the show. 
And since then, we've been, we're sort of minor celebrities. Um, I can't walk into a running shoe store or a high school or college track meet without being recognized. Uh, and, and it has been an incredible calling card as we uh, talk to the investment community because the, the people who, the investors that we talk to, they see how we handled that very high pressure situation and uh, they, they are seemingly impressed. That's great. I, I do remember, the, you know, the, the one thing I remember from seeing it now a couple of years ago was, uh, I guess it was Damon saying, it's, it's, it's rubber and, and string. And I was like, ooh, you might say yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so and, it, and it ended up, they, they, but, somebody made an offer. Lena, yeah, sorry, Lena, Lena's response to that was, no, it's a revolution. Huh. So um, they made you an offer that you didn't accept, right? Or one of them did? Yes, they made us an offer we could refuse. Kevin offered us $400,000, which is what we were asking for, for half the company, and we were offering 8% of the company. And we, we, we turned that down. It was, um, uh, it was ridiculously undervalued. So here, you, how, how many years ago was that? That was like three years ago? It aired uh, in 2013. January, it first aired at the end of January 2013 and then reran uh, in June of 2013. Three years ago now, so uh, yeah. So tell me what 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 you guys are up to now. I know you just you just um, hmm. f full disclosure. You you sent me a pair of shoes that I did not I did. pay for. So um, so you know everyone has to take this conversation with a grain of salt because I, I I am in your pocket now. I have been <laughs> I have been I have been bought. Um, Bengali like I control your every move. Yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna just you know, repeat this podcast out in from item now for. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, I mean, you you sent me a, a new pair that I'm really enjoying, um, and so you know where where is both your company going and where's the the, the movement because you're not the only company mm -hmm. selling things that are Correct. inspired by horaches and barefoot. So what what does the future Correct. hold for for our feet? Yeah. It's a great question. So um, the where we're going is we've expanded the product line dramatically, and we're becoming a full-fledged, um, full-line footwear company. That's we refer to what we do as as performance recreation footwear. So it's it's all things that you can wear casually and that are strong enough to handle performance. Everything from you know stroll on the beach to running a 256k ultra marathon across Madagascar, which something uh, we have a couple who actually did that. And so the sandal products we made, we went from just a do-it-yourself kit, which we still sell and is very popular, to a number of ready-to-wear products, both with the warache design. And what that means is just there's a thong between your toes and it wraps around your foot with this very simple uh, system that is a, geez, a, at least a 10,000-year-old idea. <clears throat> Pardon me. Um, and now we also make sport sandals. So we have the a Z Trek sandal that we launched last year. And by sport sandals, I mean if you think about the familiar uh, sandal like Chaco or Teva or Keen, things in that family. But ours are seven up to seventy six percent lighter weight and thinner. So and they flex and bend and move like your feet do. So they don't take up any room. They roll up and fit in your pack in your pocket or your pocket. They <clears throat> the the new one, the Z Trail. Pardon me. <clears throat> The, the Z Trail, 
which we just launched a week and a half ago. It floats, um, and and they offer a little more protection. So we have a range of products that go from really, really barefoot to offering enough protection to handle mountain trails and anything you can throw at them. But again, the key to everything we do is that it lets your feet bend, flex, and move naturally, and it actually fits your foot. So where it's going from there is we have some footwear, some actual closed-toed shoes that are coming out in the fall of 2000, what year is this, 16? Uh, one's a casual shoe that is really beautiful that if you wanted to, you could just hang out with your friends. And then if someone said, hey, do you want to go climb a mountain? You wouldn't have to change your shoes. You could go do that. And if they got dirty, you could just throw them in the washing machine. Um, and we've also developed a running shoe that's kind of a, a, a cross shoe. What I mean by that is it's it works for road running. It works for trail running. It works for working out. And it's, again... Um, it's an unusual design. Uh, we I, let me. I, I need to say it this way: I know nothing about footwear design, or I knew nothing about footwear design. And but what my seemingly marketable job skill is is figuring out what's for real and what is mythology, superstition, and urban legend. And in the footwear industry, there's a lot of mythology, superstition, and urban legend. And my background as an undergraduate, I did research on cognitive psychology, specifically what happens in your mind, in your brain, as you are trying to do and learn physical things and how that affects how you can do and learn these physical things. So I've just sort of done a lot of research watching how people move. Um, and I've, I've taught everything from gymnastics to running to Zen archery. Uh, so movement is just one of my one of my specialties, and that's influencing our designs um, quite significantly. So we we have uh, designs that are that that look familiar until you put them on, and then you go, oh my god, that fits. Oh my god, that's comfortable. Oh my god, look what I can do in it, and I can actually feel the world. So that's where we're going. We're, we're just looking to continue to expand the product line so that we have things that you could wear from the moment you wake up to the moment you go to bed if you don't want to be barefoot, which we encourage. And uh, and then just doing more and more marketing. We've been selling primarily online at zeroshoes.com. Uh, we're also listed on Amazon and some other third-party sellers, and we're moving pretty rapidly into retail. So that's where things are going for us. For the movement itself, there are an, a couple of companies who are similarly focused. Um, I think we're making, obviously, I think that, our, some, that most of our products are, are better. We like them more. But where the movement's going, it's definitely not disappearing. Uh, it's stayed flat since the big companies stopped promoting it. And I think it's going to be expanding more organically. In fact, I, I use the word organically uh, on purpose. I, I've been talking to people who helped with the natural foods industry, who helped create that whole idea of food that is not adulterated and processed and artificial in many, many ways. And and they there's now sort of an umbrella where if you can make a product that can that can reliably or responsibly or accurately uh, use that term of natural, it, it's just a shoe in. I mean people just are are now conditioned, if you will, to respond to natural. We want to do with footwear what they did with food. We want to use those same techniques, frankly, to make to to wake people up from the trance 
that they've now been in for 45 years that you need padded motion controlled shoes and orthotics and start to realize that you can use your feet naturally, that you can strengthen, that you can improve, that you can uh, um, continue to enjoy, more importantly, because it's fun, that you can enjoy being natural and that there is a natural alternative and then there are fake giant corporate industrial alternatives. And if we can accomplish that, things get very, very interesting. I, ironically, I don't have messianic tendencies by nature, but, but um, now I want to change the world. Well, yeah, I do have the hair. There is that. And people ask me about that all the time. They go, what's with the hair? I go, well, my wife said that if I cut it, she would leave me or at least stop sleeping with me. And I have never known her to lie. So um, I'm not putting that to the test. And uh, uh, um, so we we think that the idea of natural movement can catch on if it is if it's done right. I mean, it's it's going to take a not insignificant amount of time and effort to wake people up. But um, because of what the natural foods world has done, we can really capitalize on that. Because of the work that you're doing, we can capitalize on that because there are people, more and more people every day, who are getting hip to realizing that they've been snowed. And we, we are looking forward to being part of um, changing that for footwear. And there's a number of ways that we, we think we can do that, that uh, we'll see what happens over the next couple of years. Right on. So uh, for people who want to read your blog posts and check out your footwear products, where can they go? They can go to uh, Zero Shoes is X-E-R-O Shoes and pretty much Zero Shoes everything. So ZeroShoes.com is our website and then Facebook.com slash Zero Shoes at Zero Shoes on Twitter and Pinterest and Instagram. Uh, well, Pinterest is zero is Pinterest slash Zero Shoes. Uh, YouTube.com slash Zero Shoes. Uh, Flickr.com slash Zero Shoes. We're Zero Shoes everywhere. Gotcha. And so you're still, you're still writing the article so it can help people... I do. Um, I made a ten-part video series for people who are making the transition. Um, we're, I'm, 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 I'm always creating something new. There's a lot there, and frankly, I'm, I'm looking to reorganize it so that it's even easier for people to, to find everything they need. Uh, we're on a, we're on a constant mission to make this information uh, simpler to, to access and to take advantage of, uh, and that's a never-ending process. Great. Well, you know, this is. I mean, this. It's, it seemed like when, I, when we started talking about doing this interview that this would be a fairly niche, niche topic, and yet no. leg pain, body pain, stops yes. people from exercising. It means they get overweight. It means they get despondent, and they start taking psych drugs. It's, yeah. you know, the, 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 this, is, this is really, you know, from, literally from the ground up. That, uh, I'm, you know, being, I'm being only mildly hyperbolic when I say that if my father had been wearing our shoes, which he couldn't because by the time we started doing this, he just shuffled, that's just how he walked. If he were not a shuffler, he would be alive today. And, um, and, that, is, and that is not hyperbolic because what happened is he was coming out of a store, shuffling out of the store, tripped on a, a little ledge, fell down, broke his hip, and three weeks later he was dead. And we, we, it's not that that's my per, it's now my personal mission because of that, but, uh, but it is, uh, it's, that certainly, that certainly did not, did not lessen the desire we have to, to make this a real thing. Think of it this way. Uh, here, here's my simplest analogy. If you put your hand out in front of you, palm down, so your thumb is pointing towards your face and you wiggle your fingers. That's what your foot is supposed to do. Your foot is supposed to bend and flex and move so that it can respond to the ground 
and feel things and balance you and hold you up and get and and put your body in the right posture so that everything above it as you said from the foundation up can move correctly if you don't let it do that then that function tries to move what we refer to as upstream into your ankle i'm pointing at my wrist while i say this into your ankle into your knee i'm pointing at my elbow into your hip i'm pointing at my shoulder into your back i'm pointing at my back um, so it tries to move upstream if you don't let your foot do what it's naturally designed to do well all of those other joints are not designed for those purposes and so that's why we when we see people getting out of their big padded shoes and into something into barefoot or into something like zero shoes we get all these reports of people saying hey my foot pain ankle pain hip pain knee pain back pain headaches have gone away and now i'm walking hiking running pain pain free and enjoyably for the first time in years and when you get those reports on a daily basis uh, first of all it makes the difficulties of business a lot easier to to deal with and it um you know, I like to say if you're going to run a business, it's really nice to run one that changes people's lives. And that's what we have, and that's what we want to keep doing. Right on. And, and certainly one that doesn't like make people worse and make them dependent on your next product no. because your first product injured them. No, no. In fact, um, our products come with a 5,000-mile warranty, which is inspired by the Taramata sandals and the fact that they made them out of tires. People used to say, how long are zero shoes going to last? And we say, I don't know. Um, no one's worn out a pair yet. So we came up with a 5,000-mile warranty. And the number of people who are still wearing the, the product that we created five, six years ago is high. We believe, you know, the answer to your question, why don't we charge exorbitant prices, is Lane and I run this business the way we would want to uh, interact with it if we were customers. So we don't charge ridiculous prices. We make things that last a long time instead of have planned obsolescence built into them. Um, and we have a, a very, very uh, responsive customer service team. So we're here to help and educate, which a lot of the other companies are not doing. And we, um, we, we, we really, we don't take it lightly that what we're doing is affecting people in the way that it is. And we feel very responsible and want to help. We're, we're incredibly grateful that all of these crazy things sort of lined up to allow us to be here. And the plans that we have for the future are incredibly exciting. And we just have our fingers crossed because there's a lot between here and there that we can, uh, geez, if we can just do half of what we're planning, we're going to have a lot of fun and we're going to help a lot of people. Right on. And, um, you know, we talked mostly biomechanics here, but, uh, mm. you know, and, and, and we don't, I don't think we have time to go into where I want to go, but I've been reading a lot about sort of ecological theory and, and philosophy and the idea of our separation from the earth is like a fundamental aspect of like, you know, European civilization and, and the cause of a lot of environmental issues. And so I don't, I don't want to overplay it, but I think getting back in touch with the earth, grounding ourselves, and it's no accident that the word soul means two different things if it's spelled differently. Uh, I think this, this really could be a very big, a big shift. When people, when people have the experience of feeling things under their feet, it, it, you watch their eyes just light up. When they have the experience of getting out of a sandal, for example, like some of our competitors that weigh over a pound each into something that weighs four or five ounces, their eyes light up. And uh, it's a very rare product that creates that kind of effect, but it's not us creating the effect. It's that we're just getting out of the way for the first time. And it's... Um, 
uh, a friend of mine described it as he says when I wear your your shoes it's like instant meditation because I'm feeling so much it draws my attention to the world around me and I and, and like my first run barefoot I was so entranced that it was so interesting that I didn't even realize I had just run oh gosh uh, ten times further than I ever had before. So I uh, I invite everyone you know go go get barefoot um, <laughs> if you if you can run barefoot if you live near the beach then you're all set then uh... no 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 you can run barefoot no matter where you are if you go to our website there's really simple instructions and here's the world's simplest instructions for running barefoot take off your shoes and look this is crazy I, I have a shoe company and I'm the first guy to say take off your shoes go barefoot zero shoes are for those times and situations where you want to be as close to barefoot as possible but barefoot isn't appropriate but if you can be barefoot do it take off your shoes find a nice smooth hard surface because that's going to give you the most feedback um, if you're running on a soft surface a like grass you can't see what's in the grass you might step on or in something you don't want to um, and then you've just taken the padding that was in your shoes and put it in the ground you don't want that so find a nice smooth hard surface go for a very short run like 200 yards 30 seconds and if you feel and and if you feel good the next day add 10 seconds the next time you run if you feel sore or you're in pain um, then wait till you feel good try it again and just do something different till you're having fun if you're having any pains and we give some more specific tips on our website but pain this whole no pain no gain thing also, propaganda. It was an advertising uh, um, campaign. It's not what you should be guiding your life by and guiding your running and walking by. If it hurts, you're probably doing something wrong. If you pay attention to that, your body is naturally going to want to find a way to move that feels good. So use fun and feeling good as your yardstick and then just slowly, slowly, slowly increase the amount of time that you're doing things until you, you don't have to think about it anymore because you're just having fun being barefoot. Uh, I love it. I love that. There's so there's so much more to unpack about following bliss rather than pain, but I think we'll we'll leave that for another time. And Stephen Sashin of Zero X E R O Shoes dot com. Thank you so much for taking the time. Harry, thank you so much. What an absolute pleasure. All right, take care. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Plant Yourself Podcast. If you're new to the show, you can catch up on 150 archived episodes over at PlantYourself.com. And if you're subscribed to the podcast, but not the Plant Yourself email newsletter, please go to plantyourself.com, sign up. I include links to articles, my weekly TV show, Triangle Be Well, and my grammar is way better in writing. Big thanks this week to podcast patrons Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Morrow, Elizabeth Clifton, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, and Ellen Kennelly. Thank you guys so much for your generous support of this podcast. If you would like to support the show, you can share it and other episodes on social media and via email with anyone you think would enjoy or benefit from the conversation. You can go to iTunes or Stitcher and write a review. And actually, this week, I just got an email that the podcast is now up on Google Play. If you have an Android device, you should soon be able to get podcasts and this one in particular. You can also become a patron by pledging a one-time amount or an ongoing donation to the podcast over at plantyourself.com. In garden news, there's a lot of activity going on around here these days. We've got a truckload of mushroom compost coming, which we're going to be tilling into the beds that we made. We uh, cleared out a lot of brush in the back 40. Well, back two, actually. And this is that time of year when it's 
really hot during the day and still gets kind of chilly at night. So we are running a ferry service with all our starts and seedlings uh, out to the little greenhouse and back into the house at night. Feels like uh, we're running a kindergarten. And can't wait for the last frost date where we can get those babies into the ground and connecting their roots to Mother Earth. So my wish for you is that if you've been running around like crazy and feeling a little dislocated, that you soon find a place where you can sink your roots into the earth and plant yourself. And as always, be well, my friends. All right, time for thanks. Thanks to Will Reidenauer for allowing me to use his beautiful song, Sabali Don, The Dance of Peace. You can find more of Will's music at his website, willreidenauer.com. And of course, thanks to all of you Plant Yourself podcast patrons. Kim Harrison, Lynn McClellan, Anthony Disson, Brittany Porter, Dominic Maurer, Barbara Whitney, Tammy Black, Amy Good, Amanda Hatherley, Mary Jane Wheeler, Ellen Kennelly, Mr. Cobb, Rachel Behrens, Christine Nielsen, Tina Sharp, Tina Ahern, Jennifer Kinoski, David Bizek, The Mysterious, Michelle X, Elspeth Feldman, Leah Stoller, Alan Christensen, Colleen Peck, Michelle Landry, Josina, Sarah Durkis, Rhymes with Circus, Kelly Cameron, Wayne Pedersen, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, Janet Selby, hi Janet, Claire Adams, Tom Franzak, Jeanette Benham, Gil Lassert, David Donahue, Blair Cyber, Dorona Vizov, Gio and Carl- Carolyn Argentati, Jody Friesen, Ruth Ann Funderburg, Misha Rosen, Michael Warbeck, the equally mysterious Tracy Z, Aviva Lael, Alicia Lemus, Rebecca Hughes, Val Lenneman, Rhymes with Cinnamon, Nick Harper, Martha Bergner, Susan Ahmad, Nolly Levine, the inscrutable Harry R., Susan Laverty, the Panda Vegan, Craig Kovic, Adam Sharp, Karen Burry, Heather Morgan, Kelly Machia, Deanne Norton, Bonnie Lynch, Plant Happy Oregon, Sabina Kurtzels, Nigel Davies, Marion Blum, Teresa Cobble, Julian Rodkins, Breed O'Connell. Shannon Hirschman, Linda Ayat, Holm Hedegaard, Isa Tuzinwa, Connie Hainline, Aaron Greer, Alicia Davis, Heather O'Connor, Carolyn Jensen, Sherry Olakoski of Plant Powered for Health, Karen Smith, Scott Marani, Karen Joe Crabtree, Tanya Lewis, Kirby Burton, Teresa Carell, Kevin McCauley, Elizabeth Rothschild, Ann Jesse, Cheryl Dwyer, Jenny Hazleton, Valerie Peltier, Peter W. Evans, Colleen Harrison, Justin Divich, Joshua Summermeyer, Dennis Bird, Darby Kelly, Lori Fanny, Linnea Lundquist, Valerie Hummel, Emily Iaconelli, Levy Wallach, Rosamund McAtee, Dan Bacorny, Stephen Lehman, Patty DiMartino, Mike and Donna Karts, Dean Bishop, Bill Brielf, Gunter Schmidt, Marjorie Lewis, Kelly Molden, Trisha Adams, Ian Kramer, Nancy Sheldon, Lindsay Bayshore, Gunmarie Hagen, Tracy Gullich, Laura Heaton, Meg from Mama Says, Rochelle Kennedy, Diana Goldman, Stacey Stokes, Ben Savage, Michael Kay, Holly Butler, David Hughes, Connie Rogers, Claire England, Sally Robertson, Parin Ganshik, Amy Daly, Brian Tourville, Mark Jeffrey Johnson, Josie Dempsey, Karen Schmidt, Pamela Hayden, Emily Perryman, Olga Sidorowska, Allison Corbett, Richard Stone, Lauren Vaught of Musings, Aaron Hasty, Sean Owen, Sagar Nayak, Erica Piedra, Danielle Roberts, Michael Lushton, and Sarah Johnson for your generous support of the podcast. That's it for now. As always, be well, my friends.